thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through His Word. I want you to take a moment and just think about Jesus, picture in your mind kind of what you think of as you think of what he looks like, and I'm sure that uh, you've seen movies of Jesus or you've seen paintings of Jesus, you've seen some kind of uh, picture that someone else has thrown out there, and uh, perhaps, you know, when you picture Jesus, you picture him hanging on the cross Jesus hanging on the cross is one of the most common ways that people picture him, or maybe you picture Jesus as the uh, good shepherd, which is another very common picture of Jesus there uh, with his sheep, or perhaps you uh, picture Jesus with this miraculous uh, healer with the, the glow around his head, a lot of the artwork that we see today. Uh, you know, Jesus didn't have a glow. He didn't walk around with you know this halo on his head. Or perhaps you picture Jesus risen from the dead, leaving the tomb. You know, I'm sure all of us have tried to picture what Jesus looks like and, you know, to think through that. But what I find interesting is through the scriptures, we're really not given much of any detail of what Jesus physically looked like. You know, we have all these artist renditions. But the one thing that we are given, I find interesting because pretty much every piece of artwork with Jesus or every movie or every actor that they choose does not coincide with the one thing that we are told about his physical looks. Now, we know that he had a beard, and how do we know he had a beard? It was plucked out. out. You can't pluck out something you didn't have, and that was very uh, common of Jewish men of that day. But Jesus is also Jewish, so very much uh, likely that he had dark hair and dark eyes. Uh, I I always find it humorous, the blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus. It's very, very unlikely. You don't come across many Middle Eastern Jewish men uh, who look like that. But Isaiah tells us something that we do know about Jesus' appearance that will probably shatter some of the views of Jesus that you might have thought about. Isaiah 53, verse 2 says, And when we see him, there is no beauty that he should desire him. What Isaiah is telling us here is that Jesus wasn't an attractive guy physically. But everybody who portrays him portrays him as this really attractive man. He was just the common man. You know, he he wasn't a real attractive person physically. Now, the Bible doesn't really give us any description of what he physically looked like, except this reality that he wasn't this super attractive guy. But I find interesting, Revelation chapter 1 tells us what Jesus looks like now. We so often want to know what Jesus looked like as a man here on this earth, which the Bible chooses not to describe for us, but the Bible does choose to describe a picture of Jesus on his throne now, now that he's left heaven, that he's ascended back to, left earth, sorry, and ascended back into heaven. We have this amazing picture, and I'm pretty confident that 
what most of us have seen or picture in our mind does not coincide with what we see here in Revelation chapter 1. And so I hope as we look at this vision that John had of Jesus, it will help you to see Jesus uh, in a deeper way, perhaps in a new way, but maybe in a fuller way. Because the Gospels just give us you know, one aspect of Jesus, Jesus the man, and Revelation is giving us uh, something very different. And, and I want you to realize this is what Jesus is like right now. Uh, And so I think it's very healthy, you know, to have this vision of him. Now, I want you to remember the author of Revelation is John himself. And John was one of the close-knit people with Jesus. Not only was he his his disciple for three years, but where he was part of that inner group, you know, Peter, James, and John. They got to be with Jesus and see things that experience things that other disciples didn't. And John refers to himself in the Gospels, in kind of an interesting way, he says he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, but he had this love relationship with Jesus. We see him leaning back on Jesus's chest. You know, he was close with Jesus and obviously had a very good visual picture of what Jesus looked like. But now he's going to have a totally different vision, a whole different perspective of Jesus. And John records this vision In Revelation chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 9, which says this. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So John is on the island of Patmos, and as he's on this island, he has this amazing thing happen to him. I want you to note what it is. Verses 10 and 11 says this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So John starts off saying, when I was in the Spirit. Most commentators agree that here John is having a vision that the Holy Spirit gives him, reveals something supernaturally to him. And so as the Holy Spirit gives John this vision, John hears behind him a loud voice as of a trumpet. The loud voice that John hears is clear, it's striking like a trumpet would be, and it has something to say. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. That This loud voice shares these truths. I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, I'm the first, I'm the last. Speaking of, I am the eternal God. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8 This was clearly Jesus. And so hearing this description, John should now know who this voice is that is speaking these things. So Jesus introduces himself with this title that we saw in Revelation 1.8. And then Jesus tells John, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. So this loud voice comes from behind John, but he hasn't yet seen who this is. He should know who it is because of the description of, I'm the Alpha and Omega. Okay, it's Jesus, but I'm sure even the voice, because it sounds like a trumpet, wasn't the voice that he was familiar with as in Jesus' earthly voice. So he hears this voice behind him. He doesn't see anything yet. He knows that it's Jesus, and he's about to turn around, 
and see for the first time a very different picture of Jesus than what he remembered as Jesus was on earth. Let's see what he does now. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about his chest with a golden band. So John says, then I turned to see this voice that spoke to me. And you can only imagine what's in John's mind. He hears, oh, this is Jesus. And I'm sure there's all these things flooding his mind and all these pictures of Jesus that he remembered as he walked with him on this earth. And he's about to turn thinking, oh, it's, it's, wait a second, who is this? You know what I mean? It's kind of like a person that you haven't seen for a long time and you're expecting, you know, what you saw in the past. And all of a sudden they're very different looking. And so, you know, I'm sure John was quite surprised with what he saw Because the last time he saw Jesus was right before he ascended to heaven. And he turns, and the first thing he sees, he tells us, are these seven golden lampstands. Now, in verse 20, we're told that these golden lampstands represent the seven churches that Jesus is writing to. Now, the fact that the churches are represented by these lampstands is very significant because in the uh, book of Exodus and you see the temple, one of the most significant pieces in the temple was the golden lampstand. Now, here is a picture of a golden lampstand that is made right now to go into the third temple. Uh, Jenny and I were in Israel. We took a picture of this. It is behind bulletproof glass because I'm sure that is worth a lot of money. It's solid gold uh, and it's quite big. But uh, this is what is going to go into the third temple. This is what would have been in the temple that was originally made with Solomon and then the one that was redone uh, during the time of Herod. And so with this, notice that you have one, it's, some refer to it as the menorah, but it's this lampstand. It's one lampstand with these six branches and the one in the middle, which makes seven. So it's all connected together. So this picture of seven lampstands reminds us of the golden lampstand in the temple, but there's a difference. The difference being that all these are connected together in one lampstand, but John says that he sees seven individual ones, uh, as opposed to one all connected with branches coming out. There's just little individual lampstands together. Now, most commentators believe that in the Old Testament, you have seven lamps all connected to one lamp because it's representing the one nation of Israel. In the vision here with the separate ones, it's speaking of the church, but notice the church is made up of many tribes, tongues, and nations all together. And the number seven in the Bible is the number of completion. And so we have this kind of complete picture of the diverse church together. So when John turns, the first thing he sees are these seven lampstands that represent the church. And then John sees Jesus, and notice where Jesus is. He's in the midst of the lampstands. We're told, and I saw in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. You know, when Jesus spoke of himself in the Gospels, the way that he referred to himself more than any other thing, the title he used of himself was the Son of Man. And now John is using that same title as, I saw someone like the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself. But it's a different picture than what I remember, but he's there in the midst of these lampstands that represent the church. And I think the fact that Jesus is seen in the midst of the church is very important. Because as we look at the different descriptions of Jesus, we're going to see some of what he's doing in the midst of the church. 
So Jesus in the midst of the church, and now John is going to give us a description here of what Jesus looked like. And the first thing that John tells us is that Jesus was clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about his chest. Notice where he's girded with a golden band. That probably looks something like we have shown up here. Now, with each one of these things that John tells us, we're going to see it indicate something about Jesus, and we're going to look at other parts of Scripture to help us hopefully understand what some of these things are pointing to, because most of the imagery here in Revelation is used in other parts of the Bible, so we can use other parts of Scripture to help us understand what John is speaking about. The clothing of Jesus is significant because I think it... it, it reveals something important about Jesus and who he is and a particular role that he plays for us. Jesus' garments indicate that he's dressed like a high priest. In the book of Exodus, we're given several descriptions of the high priest and the high priestly garment and the way in which they were dressed. And here's just one of those descriptions. Exodus chapter 29, verse 5 says, Then you shall take the garment, put the tunic on Aaron, who was the first high priest, and the globe of the ephod, the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with it with the intricately woven band of the ephod. Now, the garment of the high priest, as we read in other places, was a long flowing garment down to the feet, which wasn't very common for people to wear, uh, because when you were active and you were serving and you were doing things, you would pull that up so you could do stuff. So things you know, coming down to your feet wasn't the most common thing. But when you would gird something up, like we would today with a belt, you would put it around your waist. But notice here, he has this around his chest. Uh, The high priest also had this golden band uh, with other different things on it. Uh, And so we see this with this picture of Jesus. And I think this is interesting because we know in Scripture, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 tells us, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. Hebrews spends a lot of time speaking about Jesus as our high priest. And that's very, very significant, especially when you look at the role of the high priest in the Old Testament and thinking that Jesus now plays that role for us. Jesus, our high priest, remember again, he's in the midst of the church. I find this very significant because one of the duties of the Old Testament priest, and as they would go in and take care of uh, the temple, they would tend to the golden lampstands. Every day they had to fill the oil, they had to clean the soot, they had to trim the wicks, they had to closely inspect the lamps because the lamps had to continually burn before the Lord, and it was their job to make sure that they were continually burning and that their light never went out. Here we have Jesus, our high priest, in the midst of the church. And one of the purposes of the church is to be a light to the world. And I think what's so important for us to recognize is ultimately the light that we have is Jesus Christ shining through us, but he's also the one that helps us to continually shine. He calls us to be that light, but he's also the one that is our high priest, the one that's helping us, the one that's preparing us and caring for us so that we continually shine for him in this world. That's what the letters to the churches are all about in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Jesus, the high priest, the caretaker of the lampstands, giving seven messages to the church to help them burn brighter for him, to help them get rid of things that are causing them not to burn and to do things that will help them burn more effectively for him in this dark world. So the first thing that John tells us is that Jesus was clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about his chest with the golden band, speaking of Jesus, the high priest. The second thing that John tells us is that Jesus' head and hair 
were white like wool, as white as snow. The color of Jesus' hair, which would include his beard, that's why it says head and hair, speaking of his head hair and other hair on his body, most significantly his facial hair, it indicates Jesus' purity, it indicates his holiness. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 says, Though your sins are like scarlet, that's why we actually named scarlet, scarlet spelt like that, they shall be as white as snow, though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah uses these same terms that John uses, but Isaiah is speaking about the fact that Jesus, because he died on the cross for our sin, has made us this pure person. We're sinners, but yet even though we're sinful because Jesus paid for our sin, now God sees us as white as wool, white as snow. There's this purity that has happened because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. And the only reason that Jesus could make us pure was because he is completely pure. The only reason he can make us holy is because he was completely holy. And so it's significant that you would have him with this white hair, this white beard, signifying the fact that he truly is the pure, holy God as he sits on the throne in heaven. So the first thing that John tells us is that Jesus was clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. The second thing is that Jesus' head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. The third thing that John shares is probably something that we never picture about Jesus. His eyes were like fire. I've seen different portrayals of this. This one's kind of more mellow. But have you ever pictured Jesus with eyes like flames of fire. Jesus' eyes being like flames of fire is significant because it's another indication of something important about him. Fire is almost always associated with judgment in the Bible. As you look throughout the Old Testament, even look throughout the New Testament, fire and judgment almost always come together. Obviously, you have the most extreme, the fires of hell, which is God's ultimate judgment. But you see that throughout the sacrificial system. Fires always has this connection with the judgment of God. So Jesus' eyes display this fire of searching, penetrating judgment. He has the ability to see right through you. He has the ability to know exactly what's going on in your life. To the church that Jesus was most upset with, is the church of Thyatira. Not the church that you want to be associated with, not the things that you want to be doing, but that was the one he had the most issues with. With every church he had a problem with, but that one he had the most problems with. And I want you to note how he describes himself, because with every church he gives a different description about himself to kind of connect with what's going on with them. Well, they have some pretty big sin issues. And notice what he says about himself when speaking to them in Revelation 2.18. And it said, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write... These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire. In verse 23, all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Jesus has eyes like fire that are able to search out what we do, whether good or bad. He's ultimately going to give to us what we deserve. Now, for us as believers, we're blessed the fact that our sin is washed away, as we already looked at. We are going to be in the Lamb's book of life, but we are going to be judged for the works that we do. 
Paul talks about that. Some's going to be wood, hay, and stubble because it wasn't for the Lord. Some is going to be gold, precious stones. is going to last for eternity. But we're going to stand before the Lord, and he's going to be able to see the, the motive of our heart, the intentions of why we did it, the, the, the things that we did, because he has this penetrating gaze that recognizes everything. These eyes that come from the just judge who's going to see all that's in your life. The first thing that John tells us, Jesus is clothed with his garment down to his feet, girded with this golden band, picture of the high priest. Second, Jesus' hair white like wolves, white as snow, picture of his purity and holiness. Third, Jesus with these eyes of fire focusing on his judgment. And the fourth thing that John tells us is that Jesus' feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. Once again, this is a picture of something very significant and interesting, especially when you look at the Old Testament. And I'm sure that if you've read through Exodus and you look at all the different things about the sacrificial system, sometimes you just sit back and say, why? Why, God, did you make them do this and this and this? It just seems so weird. But yet we know that it's all pointing to who? Jesus. There's a point and a significance to it. Brass in the Bible is a metal connected with judgment and sacrifice. Israel's altar of sacrifice was made out of brass. It was called the brazen altar. This brazen altar was pointing to the ultimate sacrifice that God would make for the sins of the world through Jesus Christ. Jesus' feet are like fine brass as if refined in a furnace because guess what? Jesus had to walk through the judgment of God for you and me so that we could escape it. And I think there's a great picture of his feet like fine brass because he truly did walk through the furnace of God's judgment, through what God has brought down on us that all of us deserve. Jesus took it on himself. He didn't just take our sin upon him, which is bad enough, but he took something worse. He took the judgment of our sin upon him so that we wouldn't have to face that judgment. And, And now we see him in this way of he's come through that. He's been victorious over that. He's taken that upon himself in another wonderful picture of who he is. The fifth thing that John tells us is that Jesus' voice was as the sound of many waters. This is another significant thing about Jesus and, you know, a good description about how he speaks. John's already said his voice sounded like a trumpet as he said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Now he's speaking of Jesus' voice as the sound of many waters. I don't know if you've ever been to a place where there's waterfalls or, you know, where you hear the noise of movement in water. Here's a video clip of Niagara Falls. And you can hear the sound that water makes. The sound of many waters is very powerful, it's very commanding, and that's a great picture that John portrays of how Jesus' voice sounds. And I think we have so many pictures of Jesus as this effeminate, weak person hanging on the cross. We would never think of him having this commanding voice like John describes here. But when Jesus speaks, people are going to take notice. We know in the Bible that every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when he speaks, it's going to be powerful. It's going to be commanding. The sixth thing that John tells us is that Jesus had in his right hand seven stars. In verse 20, we're told that the seven stars represent the seven angels of the seven churches. Now, this is interesting because the Greek word translated angel means messenger. It means one who is sent. And so 
you know, certain versions of the Bible translate it angel, other versions translate it messenger. Uh, an example of um, a messenger that wasn't an angel that was a human is one of the most famous messengers we have. Matthew eleven ten says, For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. This messenger is John the Baptist. And that's what he's being spoken of using the exact same Greek word here that he's using in Revelation as well. So it's translated angel in one place, messenger in the other. It can be translated either one. And so either Jesus is speaking of a specific angel that's kind of there connected with the church, or he's speaking about messengers that are men within the church. And if it is messengers that are men that are within the church, which we see, you know, that God uses, I'm so pleased that we see Jesus holding these leaders within his hand and that he's the one uh, in control. But that one's kind of an interesting one that we see. The seventh thing that John tells us is that out of Jesus' mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. It's another one of those pictures, kind of like eyes of fire, that you don't really picture Jesus. You know, he's not hanging on the cross with this sword coming out of his mouth. But notice all these pictures as, as you know, it's coming together. This is a, a picture of someone who's fierce, someone you don't want to mess with. And, you know, and this is one of the most you know, significant ones of thinking of, you know, Jesus, the sword, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Now, there are three scriptures that connect the words of Jesus or what comes out of Jesus' mouth with a sword, which I think is quite significant. I'll read them to you. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Ephesians 6, 17, The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Revelation nineteen fifteen. Now out of Jesus' mouth goes a sharp sword, that he that with it he should strike the nations. This is speaking of the battle of Armageddon. As he comes back at the second coming, he's just going to speak, and boom, everyone's going to be dead there. And it's pretty descriptive. A blood as high as the bridle of horses. Remember when Jesus was taken the night that he was betrayed, and he's before he goes to the cross, and he just speaks, I am, and what happens? All the soldiers fall down. And that's something that's so important to remember because Jesus wasn't forced to the cross. He willingly went to the cross. He could have just spoke and wiped out everybody who was seeking to do any harm to him. He has complete power and control in that regard. But his words, he used to create everything. Let there be light. There was. Let you be dead. You will be. That's going to happen. Jesus is going to speak when he comes and all those who come to battle him. You know, it's not going to be some battle where it's like, oh, we, you know, we have this epic sword battle. He's just going to speak and they're just, you know, it's going to be over quick and he's just going to annihilate all of them. That's the weapon that Jesus uses. I think it's interesting when Satan tempts Jesus and Jesus battles, so to speak, with Satan, what weapon does he use? It is written. It is written. It is written. He keeps using the word to combat what Satan is trying to do with the temptations that come against him. Something that we need to remember, Ephesians tells us one of our weapons, we talk about the armor of God. Almost all of them are protective. They're defensive. They're shields. They're breastplates. They're helmets. But we have one offensive weapon. It's called the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We have that as well. We are to use it that way as well. 
And so we see this with Jesus, but also this is something that is a challenge for us. The eighth and final thing that John tells us that Jesus is, that he has this countenance that was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, the the little video here kind of showed Jesus' face getting a different color, but obviously not like looking into the sun. I'm sure all of us have done that. I try to find a great picture, which doesn't do any justice because it's not bright enough. But if you've tried to look into the sun without sunglasses on, you can't do it for very long because it's just too bright, especially high noon, bright part of the day. You try to stare into the sun. You know, you can't see anything for a while after that. It's just your eyes are, are, are affected because it's so bright. And yet this is how John now is describing Jesus' face and all of its glory. Well, it's just so bright. It's just amazing. But I think this is interesting because when Jesus came to earth, he masked his glory with humanity. As he put on flesh, as he became a man, he was still 100% God, but he was also 100% man, but yet he masked that glory with his skin, with his humanity, but there was an instance here on this earth where he let that glory come out a bit, where he let it shine through. Does anyone remember when that was? And you know who was there? Peter, James, and John. John got to see a bit of the glory that he sees now, but he saw it back when Jesus was on earth. Matthew 17, 2 says, Jesus was transfigured before them. And notice what we're told. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. So there, when Jesus was on this mountaintop, he decided, I am going to let the glory that I always have shine through I'm not going to mask it while I'm here. And the closest disciples to Jesus all get to see that wonderful glory. And it says here the same description. His face is shining like the sun. But now in eternity, Jesus doesn't mask his glory anymore. It's something that is there. As John sees him, he always has this face that shines bright like the sun. Jesus, when he's on his throne in heaven, is in full glory. And notice that glory is shining in the midst of the church. And he wants us to shine bright in the midst of this dark world. So John gives eight descriptions of Jesus. First, he's clothed with that garment down to his feet. His chest is girded with that golden band. Speaking of Jesus, the high priest, his head and hair are white like wool, white as snow. Speaking of his purity and his holiness, his eyes are like flames of fire, that gaze of judgment that sees everything that we do. His feet are like fine brass as if refined in a furnace because he walked through the judgments of God on our behalf. His voice was like the sound of many waters that commands people to listen In his right hands he had held the seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in all its strength. Is that what you think of when you think of a picture of Jesus? Does that description come to your mind? Or is it more of common pictures that I showed at the beginning of Jesus on the cross, or Jesus with lambs, or Jesus with the halo, or Jesus, you know, at the tomb? But we need to recognize this is an impressive difference between the vision of what people often see as Jesus is. This effeminate, weak man 
This is not anything like that. And this is the real Jesus, the Jesus that lives and reigns in heaven today. We should consider the fact that this is the only physical description the Bible gives us of him. I don't think God wants us to picture Jesus the way that we so often do. He purposely didn't give us a description of him in humanity. Instead, he said, I'm going to give you a description of him in glory. Paul says, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. You see, the Gospels deal with four different aspects of Jesus. Matthew reveals Jesus as the Messiah. Mark reveals Jesus as the servant. Luke reveals Jesus as the perfect man. John reveals Jesus as God. You need all four of them to get an accurate picture of Jesus, but so often we leave out Revelation. Because Revelation now kind of completes that of, hey, and here's Jesus in glory now on the throne, ready to come back and deal with those who are his enemies. So you need all four Gospels and Revelation to get that complete picture of Jesus. In the Gospels, we see Jesus in his humility as one who's made in the likeness of men in order to suffer the death of the cross. But in the book of Revelation, we see Jesus in glory and power as the resurrected Christ who is going to come and judge the sins of the world. In the Gospels, we see Jesus as the Lamb. In the book of Revelation, we see Jesus as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Very different animals with very different purposes. After looking at the Gospels, we often only see Jesus as a God of love, and we miss that he is so much more. And this is something that's so vital because you hear a question that's so often asked by skeptics, how could a God of love send someone to hell? And what their problem is, is they don't see that God is much more than just a God of love. If that's all he was, then that question would have some legitimacy to it. But the problem is they miss the fact, well, actually, he's also holy, and he's just, and he's perfect. He cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And so that's why a God of love has to send people who reject him to hell. But because he loves you, he came and gave his life to sacrifice himself so that you could have a relationship with him so that you could escape the fires of hell. But if you choose to reject that, then you have to suffer that because God's just and he has to punish sin. It's either he punishes it on Jesus or he punishes it on you. You get to make that choice. But we need to see that Revelation reveals a a much different picture. We don't just see the God of love on the cross. We also see the God of justice, the God of wrath, the God of judgment, the God who deals with sin. And I think it's so important that the world needs to see more of this Jesus than they do today. Because I think there's this kind of flippant mindset about Jesus and who he is and the fact that he truly is going to judge the sin of the world. I think if people had a better perspective of that, they wouldn't just throw that aside so flippantly. They would really consider that reality of, wait a second, if I'm going to stand before someone like this, I might want to consider my life. I might want to consider you know, getting into a relationship with him because I surely don't want to stand in his presence as his enemy and have to deal with his wrath. But I want you to notice something. Here is a man, John, close relationship with Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved, laid back on Jesus' chest. And when he sees this Jesus described in this way, it's not, oh, give me a big hug. I've missed you. Notice what we see John do. Verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. 
John was so overwhelmed by the awesome vision of who Jesus is and his glory and majesty and might and power that he just fell down before him as a dead man. Warren Wiersbe, a great pastor, wrote this. There is a dangerous absence of awe and worship in our assemblies today. We are boasting about standing on our own feet instead of breaking and falling at his feet. I think this picture of Jesus as he is on his throne now is essential for worship. That we come and we kneel and bow before him in recognition of his glory and his power and who he is. And there should be, as as Proverbs talks about, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That brings fear. And it's not this, you know, that, that word is speaking of this reverential fear, but, you know, when you see God for who he is, you should respond with a reverential fear. When you see God in a way that we kind of picture him often as this effeminate, weak, you know, just kind of God of love and nothing else, it's easy to disrespect and not have that reverential fear. But yet when you see this picture, and that's really what comes to your mind, Hopefully there's a response of true humility and worship and getting on my knees before God and recognizing, man, you are the creator of everything. You are the judge of the earth. I do not deserve your love, and I am so grateful for it, but I have definitely a huge reverential fear of you. As John lays at Jesus' feet as a dead man, I think it's important to notice what Jesus does. Verse 17 and 18. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Jesus comes to where John is, and I love this picture of of John seeing Jesus finally in his glory, and he falls like a dead man before him, and Jesus doesn't say, yeah, you should fall like a dead man before me. Look at me. He comes over to John. He places his hand on John. He says, don't be afraid. Why? Let me tell you, John. I'm the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have paid the price for your sin. I have conquered sin and death. I have the keys to Hades and of death. I am the one who is now victorious. So you don't have to be afraid. Because you believe in me. Because you trust in me. Because you have that relationship with me. Now for those who don't know Jesus, they surely should be afraid. But John doesn't need to be. Even though Jesus is fierce in this description... He's his savior, the one he doesn't need to fear. As we see Jesus as he is in all of his glory, all of his majesty, all of his power, it should humble us. It should bring us to that place of humility to truly fall on our face before him. But we don't need to fear if we've accepted Jesus because we're not going to face his judgment. The only way to escape his power and wrath is to accept what he's done. I really challenge you to ask God to help you to see Jesus as he is. As he's described here in Revelation, as he is on his throne right now with this garment flowing down to his feet, with his chest girded with this golden band, with his 
head and hair white as wool, speaking of his purity and his holiness, his eyes like fire, speaking of that gaze, which is so important to remember because we don't get away with anything. He sees everything we do. His feet like fine brass is a reminder of the fact that he walked through the judgment that we deserve so that we wouldn't have to. His voice as the sound of mighty waters that should command our every step. His words being as sharp as a two-edged sword and his countenance being like the sun shining in its strength. You know, this is the Jesus the disciples were waiting for. This is the Jesus the Jews were waiting for. They wanted the second coming Jesus. He's coming like this to take care of enemies, to take care of business. Those who fight against him, he's going to wipe them out. They were wanting that Jesus to come and deal with Rome. They weren't expecting the Jesus who was humble, who came to give his life as a ransom for many. That wasn't what they wanted. They wanted this one. They wanted the second coming Jesus to come and deal with sin and deal with people who were against the Jewish nation. But what we need to recognize as we look back to the cross and are so thankful that Jesus did come and give his life for our sins, he is going to come again, and he's going to come like this. And for those who have rejected him... This is not going to be a Jesus they're going to meet. For those of him that don't know him, this is not going to be a Jesus that is going to let them off. He's going to punish them for eternity. And I think once again, not only should this humble us and bring us to our knees of worship and, and recognize who he is, but it should drive us to want to share the gospel all the more, recognizing this God of justice, this God of judgment, We'll do what Revelation 20 says. Everyone is going to stand before the great white throne. Jesus is going to sit on it in this fierce way that he looks, and he is going to judge the sins of the world. And it's only those who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life that will escape the judgment of God. And it's such a heart-wrenching picture of there are going to be books, plural, of every sin that you've done. And there you are, laid bare, all of your sin, Jesus knows. And fortunately for us, he can just say, your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. I don't have to worry about this. I took care of it. But for others, let's look at what you've done in your life. Every sin is going to be revealed. No one's going to be, I don't deserve hell. Everyone's going to recognize it because all their sin, every thought, everything that they've done in their life is going to be laid bare and they're going to see the sinner that they truly are. And then they're going to experience the judgment of a just God because they rejected his son. And what an overwhelming picture for us. And I hope it drives us to say, I want to share the gospel so that people can escape that day. I want them to have their name written in the Lamb's book of life so they don't have to stand before Jesus the judge. They can stand before Jesus the Savior.